0: Hi, I'm Don Famularo. The passion of music and what I do, what David is doing with Musicians on the Record is magical. It's exciting. The interviews you'll hear, you'll get a chance to hear me. So listen, have fun, be inspired, and now go out and seek your own passion. Musicians on the freaking record. Bring it on. Woo! <laughs>
1: Welcome to Musicians on the Record. I'm David Ward. You've heard the music, now hear their story. And that's what this show is all about. Musicians on the Record is the show where we get the musician's story of what drove their passion for music to start with, what challenges and obstacles they had to overcome to be successful, and what keeps them going and creative now. What do you say about the guy who is on the show today, The main inspiration for musicians on the record, my teacher and mentor of the show, Dom Famularo. Dom is the global ambassador of drumming, lives in Long Island, New York, and travels the globe spreading the word around drumming and inspiring so many people. Tons of books written, including The Cycle of Self-Empowerment. I'm so honored to have Dom Famularo on the show today. I'd love to connect with you on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Check it out, at Musicians on the Record. I'm really excited to share this with you. Without further ado, thanks for watching, and here's my time with Dom. Welcome, Dom. Thank you, David. How are you, man? Good That's to see great. you. Great. Good. Really glad to have you here. You're from Long Island, New York. You are a drummer, drum teacher, clinician, motivational speaker, author of how many books? Oh, man. Well, I've got about, uh, my published company, Wisdom
0: Media, has about 14 books out. I've got a motivational book out, and I've got a couple more motivational books that I'm working on
1: now. So I'm still uh, still cranking them out. It's amazing. And you've been called the Tony Robbins or the Gandhi of the drum (laughs) industry. Did you know that? (laughs) I I did not, and those are... Two very powerful shoes to fill. So I absolutely yes, no question. Well, I think you're I think you're there. So can we start with your story? Uh, how did drumming? How did this journey start for you? Thanks, David. You know it's kind of interesting.
0: And when I hear how people um, uh, you know analyze me or review me or see me, it's kind of interesting because I I I always remain as humble as I can as a student of life and a student of music. And I always know if, if I stay true to that cause, to so the cause of me, you know, evaluating, you know, my my essence of life, what my purpose is in life. If I keep on evaluating that and trying and keep on making myself a better person and or a better musician, then I feel like the energy of life stays full every day. So that's the first thing is I start at that that you know that you know pace of that that, that kind of philosophy every day. Yeah. It started where um, you know I, I go back to where many people began um, in the beginning. of was it February of 1964, Ed um, Sullivan Show when the Beatles hit the scene. Yeah, we saw this band play that we were in shock. I was literally 11 years old, and, and I was just in shock with my with my two older brothers and my younger sister. we were sitting there watching the show, and we just saw this this band come on and play, and just completely took us from this. This frame of mind, where we're an America in the world, that interesting place, because in, in November of 1963, President John Kennedy was assassinated in the eyes of the world, yeah. and everyone became massively depressed, and we were in we were in serious, you know, you know, shutdown. Mm-hmm. The fact that we saw this young, exciting, positive, you know, they called it a Camelot, yes. that was taken away from us. From an assassin's bullet. Yeah. And when we saw this here, it was and then the amazing afterwards when they captured Lee Harvey Oswald and then Jack Ruby yeah. comes out television, yes, yeah. him in the gut and kills him. Right. And we're young, young kids watching this. So at that point in the end of nineteen sixty three, we were all pretty much, you know, comatose. Mm-hmm. We didn't know what was happening, what was going on with our lives, with the world, with our country. So then all of a sudden, February of 1964, this band comes on from Liverpool and plays music that lifted us up. I want to hold your hand. (laughs) She loves you. (laughs) Three years. (laughs) All my loving, you know, all these great songs that were just so positive. So they lifted, sure, America, but they lifted the world. Yeah from this, this depression state that they were in. Mm. They gave us hope with their music and with the fun of playing music. So we saw this here. So I come from an Italian family. My grandparents on both sides moved to America from Italy uh, in, in, in the early 1900s. Okay. Both of my parents were born in America, so my parents were born to immigrant parents and they started speaking the new language. They had to speak English okay. in America. An Italian, which was spoken in their household, they were told in school, you know, you can't speak Italian, you've got to learn a new language. So uh-huh. my parents had to learn this had to learn English to make sure they were speaking English to get to know that. So they that became the the, the, the language of the household and my grandparents eventually had to kind of get their English better. So we were, and my father's and my mother's side were they came from a very musical family. Mm-hmm. My mother's side was way more musical than my uncles and my mom as as singers and guitar players. And my father's side were were mechanics and engineers. Mm-hmm. So, and, and they were very organized at putting businesses together and having their own station. So, they, the balance for me of the musical side and the engineering and mechanical side and organized side became a, a, a pretty even balance in my life. So, we started playing music with my two older brothers playing guitar and bass, me playing drums, my sister singing. Had <laughs> a band, the Famularos. My father was a fire chief. So, as the fire chief, our band had practiced and played. We ended up playing for the fire department, playing a lot wow. of it. So we're getting hired to play for these parties. People, yeah. we're learning songs, and the more songs we learned, the more they wanted to hire us. And before you know it, we're, you know, at the age of 12, I was a professional drummer, wow. working, you know, uh, you know, three or four jobs a month. Amazing. Good money. Yeah. 12. Yeah. Professional player playing too. So it was very interesting to see the. Development of all of that, and that it just
1: continued on from there. Incredible. Why do you think, for you, Dom, the drums? What, what called you to you about the drums? Why were you attracted to that instrument?
0: So it, 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 it's a great question, David. It really is interesting. My, my, you know, my one brother Peter is a musician that can play any instrument. He can play piano, and he can mm. play guitar. He can, wow. Any brass, he, he sax, horns. it's amazing. Whatever he can yeah. play it and he plays it well. Yeah. My brother Ben started playing clarinet in school and he had a good feel for for you know bass clarinet and that kind of took him to bass guitar mm-hmm. or beautiful grabbed guitar. They both my brothers had very good singing voices. So they kinda of grabbed guitar and bass and I just saw that the, the the drums more than more than me choosing the drums, I just felt that the drums chose me. I just felt mm-hmm. that's what I'm gonna play. Mm-hmm on the drums, felt comfortable, and we we got some basic gear to play. Uh, one amplifier that had two guitars in it and two microphones in it. And, and at the beginning stage, the amplifiers with that much equipment with two microphones and two guitars, yeah, the sound sounded like radio-free Europe, you know? Right, like, right. <sighs> <sighs> We loved it, the sound, and mm-hmm. we of playing, and I had a basic marching snare drum with a ride cymbal that was a marching you know, crash cymbal yeah. on a stand, and so the sounds that we had didn't necessarily sound good, but we practiced and played, my sister would sing, and people liked what we did because we were young kids mm-hmm. that enthusiastic, my my brothers are four and three years older than I am, myself my sister's five years younger than I am, so we were young kids, playing music and when people saw us play music and make these sounds of harmonies they were blown away so they kept on hiring us more the more they hired us the more money we made the better equipment we
1: bought mm. the better equipment we bought the better we sounded sure of course right do you remember your first drums your first drum kit i sure do
0: man uh, i I had it at the Baldwin Fire Department, where my father was was, was, a, was a member of this volunteer fire department. They were getting rid of a lot of their old equipment and buying new equipment. So I had an old marching drum, hmm. a mother-of-pearl marching drum, which is very, very deep. Okay. The, and then I had a I had a um, a white with blue dots tenor drum hmm. that became my floor tom. Okay. I got a 28-inch marching bass drum, which was my bass drum. Hmm. And the firehouse had a small little... 14-inch timpani that had a tuning pedal on it that can go higher or lower. Wow. That's my my second drum. So I had a tenor marching drum for my first fourth drum and a timpani. It was this collection of, of sounds and that was my first kit. And then I had purchased a a, a Slingle and Red Sparkle kit yeah, at a vocal store near us. And then I got a a, a real nice you know uh, you know uh, you know pearl mother of pearl mm-hmm. drums. What this, from Sam Ash store and here on Long Island. Sam Ash was a big store on Long Island, and, sure. and Jerry Ash, the, the, the son of, of Sam Ash who opened the store many years ago, who and now Jerry Ash now is in his 90s, Wow! and he sold me my drum set hmm. at Hempstead Sam Ash store, so every time I go back to the, meet the Sam Ash people and speak to Jerry Ash, we always go back to the time that, you know, you know, 50 plus years ago, he sold me my drum set, and that was really the the
1: essence of me starting to have professional equipment and taking this more serious. When you hear music, Dom, how is it? How do you hear it? Some people hear rhythm, for some people uh, focus on the lyric or the vocal. What's the way that you hear music? Big question. I, I I pretty much hear
0: I, I hear the whole piece, and and if there are lyrics in the song. The lyrics are a part of a, a major part of, of listening to them because that's the story. Mm-hmm. And if I understand the story of the lyrics, there's a good chance I'm going to better understand the music that is supporting that story. Got it. <laughs> if, the, if the song has no lyrics, I'll listen to the melody and listen to how the melody is being delivered. Mm-hmm. Because I listen to how the melody is being delivered by a sax player or by a, by a guitar player or whatever that solo instrument is. I'm going to also better understand how the music supported that, so it's pretty much the, the, the bigger picture with the focus on the, the, the purpose and message of the song, and then, and then that opens up many other options. Then after I kind of get a feel for the song, I'll then begin to focus on what each instrument is doing, what the what what groove the drummer is laying in, and what how the bass player is interacting with the drummer, and how the guitar player is laying the rhythm down, or how the melody the, the soloist is just inter- inter- placing through the song and what they're doing with it, it's just, it becomes magic at that point where, you know, it's just wonderful.
1: Yeah. You know, you spoke about, about the Beatles and, of course, Ringo, what an inspiration for a generation. Can you can you talk a little bit about three, four, five other artists that at that point, when you were growing up, inspired you to really burn that passion for music? Oh, absolutely. Another great question. So, so the Beatles kind of got us into this whole thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Then... From that, you know, my family being a very musical family, there was always music around the household. Yeah. One of the key aspects was Sinatra. Mm, yeah. And so we had we had, you know, albums of Sinatra on all the time. Of being an Italian family, and, and Sinatra being Italian, that was a, a big part of the heritage of what it was. So hearing Sinatra with the big band, Sinatra live at the Sands, mm. the Basie band, yeah. it's incredible out that I would hear, and I would hear this, you know, these guys swinging on there, you know, and, 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 and how these, the drummers, they just, these guys, yes. sounded fantastic. Yes. Then in the pop field, it then kind of went into from the Beatles. It kind of brought me into Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Mm. Wow. When Blood, Sweat, and Tears happened, and we heard horns yes. with this kind of rock music, right? these kind of jazz players. Yeah. When Blood, Sweat, and Tears was, you know, Danny Columbia. Who was just a, 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 a phenomenal, phenomenal, you know, uh, uh, artist, yeah. uh, Bob Columbia, mm-hmm. and Bob Columbia was this great, great drummer mm-hmm. that just had a certain feel for the drums. You can see he was kind of like a, a jazz drummer, but played loose rock. Mm-hmm. the horn band, and then shortly after that, Chicago. Right. Right. Danny Seraphin on drums. Danny yeah. Ser- horn band yeah. that was kind of like a big band in a small group. Mm. So between going from the Beatles being attracted to music, then getting involved with the jazz of Sinatra, and then hearing these other artists take jazz but put it into rock, it was an interesting transition into what happened with the bands, and then then I was introduced to Earthman and Fire.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah. Earthman and Fire, another horn band, but sure. they were really funky. Right. Yeah. And and then that got me into into funk music and, and, you know, White with Earth and the Fire, yes. Mauricio White, who, Mauricio, Maurice White was a was a drummer himself. Mm, wow. Nice. He, and he sang with Earth and the Fire. He was a drummer. I heard him for the band um, with, um, uh, they played the song, You're In With The In Crowd. Um, I can't remember who the piano player was. Okay. But it was, they had, you're in with the in crowd yes, sure. on drums playing. and Then he got involved with singing, and then he started working with a fire, and that was a whole other thing happening. Wow. And then all of that, then all of a sudden I hear this crazy big band with this drummer Buddy Rich on right, right. And once I heard that, I said, what the <laughs> freak is going on What is this guy doing that he's taking this instrument of drums right. and just completely playing? Intertwining into 20th of that song with such excitement and has yeah. and skill mm. and ease, total total ease. So then, when I went to hear Buddy live, mm. when I went Blood Sweat here in Chicago, and these bands live, Sinatra live, mm. and, and it, it was like, whoa, this was. You know, yeah, at that time,
1: that, that, that's what was molding me to suck me into music. Absolutely. Well, and these were your musical inspirations, your sort of musical teachers uh, on record, at least. Some of them you met in person. You, you've met Buddy Rich in person, certainly one of a kind. Can, yeah. you, can you say a little bit about Buddy Rich? Buddy like, well, it was an interesting start for me, because this was a uh, Al
0: Miller, a teacher here on Long Island. Mm-hmm. Passed away in the year 2000. At the age of seventy-three, and this was a man who was such a great guy and a great. And on Long Island, he was the v teacher. Everyone who plays drums knows of the of Al Miller or the legend of Al Miller. Cool. At one time, he had like you know he had like fifteen teachers teaching for him. He had eighty students a week teaching. It was an incredible business that he had that he built up. Yeah. he was the guy in the sixties and seventies. So I went to learn you know learn from Al, and I met Al. My band was playing. At one of these firehouse installation dinners mm-hmm. which had a thousand people at it and we were the band playing dance stuff and then they would have a floor show that would happen and this the, the floor show from this this place we're playing at the big band would come up come up on our stage and play the hour floor show and then they would leave and we come back and do the rest of the dance stuff wow so um, al miller was playing the floor show with that and he was the musical director at this you know, huge uh, catering hall here on long island so I'm playing with my band. I'm like, you know, 14 years old. And Alan Miller, who I his name is I knew, and I tried to get lessons with him, and he just got so filled up. Mm. So he, but I had his books. He wrote six drum books. Wow. I'm looking on his books. This guy was a, a legend on Montana. He used to get a lesson with him. It's incredible. Yeah. And I had tried a couple times and couldn't get through him as far as no times available. Yeah. So I'm on this gig. And also, Al Miller walks up to me and says, excuse me, my name is Al Miller. And I said, oh, Mr. Miller, I know who you are. Mm. He said, Do you mind if I use your drums to play the, the floor show? He's going to bring my drums up. If I could just borrow your drums. And I said, Mr. Miller, it would be an honor for me. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, he came up and like, tapped the drum. And he goes, man, I love the setup. I love the drums. I'm not going to change anything. You, you got this down. Wow. And I said, I'm totally honored. Yeah. I said, the only thing that I asked, I said, is it possible, can I... Sit behind you and watch you read the show. Wow. Yeah. He says to me, Absolutely, but you're going to have to turn the pages for me. Huh? Great. I'm, I'm going to put you to work. <laughs> what he did with that is, and I, I became nervous because now I had a Sure. no one to turn the page. Yeah. Because he was conducting, man, he was the musical director. Wow. So now all of a sudden what he did brilliantly is immediately got me involved to see what my capability was. Right. If I could follow along and be involved and pay attention and if I was on it. So I was following the measures and I was turning the pace just to do two measures before. So he was happy with that. So after the performance, which he played flawlessly, mm-hmm. the singer came in, talked through the chart like 15 songs, looked mm-hmm. where the kicks were, Al got up, conducted it, played the drum, finished it. Just cut this thing like a hot knife through warm butter. You know? wow. I'm, wow. I'm dumbfounded. He said to me, he said, man, you turned those pages excellent. Mm-hmm. You should call me Monday morning, I'll get you in for a lesson. I call him Monday morning, he books me in for a lesson. I'm in a lesson without a
1: <laughs> That's amazing. So you had already learned how to read music at that point without any lessons? Had you had any lessons before? I had a couple of lessons from some local guys in the area. Yeah.
0: Just living around, that really weren't serious drummers. They were just kind of near our near you know, music stores near me, yeah. and yeah. kind of got me into reading music and kind of got the basics of it. Okay. So I had an understanding of it, yeah. but I sure I sure wasn't the reader that I am now. Sure, sure. But I had a basic feel for reading music yeah, because exactly. I was getting together with other bands and jamming with them, and we had to, we, you know, we read more music years ago with bands than a lot of kids do today. Sure, you go to a rehearsal and they passed out charts. Right. It was just like a jam station. There, there was some organized things. So, so I had an understanding. And then with Al, I was with Al for like four or five years and I became mm. a top student in the fact that when he went on uh, on a holiday with his wife for a couple of weeks, he asked me to sub his teaching practice. Wow. So I, I had the key to his house, to his studio, and I went there and I taught for two weeks and, and taught his students, and it was just a wonderful experience. Mm. Then when Al came back, he said, you know, he said, he said, you did a great job. All the students loved your lessons. I want you to come over to my house next week, and I want you to have a, a you know a lesson, you know, a, a, and have a, a session and meet a, a buddy friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh well, I meet a buddy friend of mine. We'll have a little to hangout together. It'll be great. I said great. I said you know, a buddy friend of yours. Yeah. Great. So sure. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a couple of days later it comes yeah. up. So as I'm driving to Al's house, you, had, you know, had to kind of come off of a major highway. On that major highway was a club called Poor Peters. Okay and it was a big club that had a lot of bands performing there, and as I ride by that club to go to Al's house that night for dinner, I see on the marquee, tonight, the Buddy Rich big band. Mm, cool. I knew Al always talked about Buddy, and he loved mm-hmm. Buddy, he mm-hmm. studies Buddy's charts. Mm-hmm. So I go to the place, I'm gonna go there, and I'm gonna buy some tickets. Yeah. So I pull in the place, and I go and I buy three tickets, one for me, one for Al, and one for his buddy. Friend. <laughs> I get these tickets put in my pocket. I drive to Al's house. I knock on the said, Al, I said, "Man, this is great to be here. Have I got a surprise for you?" <laughs> that's wonderful. Come on in the house because I've got a surprise for you too. Yeah. <laughs> I walk in the house into his foyer area, and I turn to his dining area, his living area, and there sitting on the couch is Buddy Rich. Wow, it's amazing. <laughs> I, I was, I was to say, I was, I was awestruck or, or flabbergasted. Yeah. You know, the old Honeymooners show, I started doing an imitation of Ralph Cramden. <laughs> I start going <laughs> I right. I I couldn't believe this sure. was like Buddy. And I had right. just seen Buddy a couple of days before on the Johnny Carson show. Sure. He just did a special with Sinatra. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was like yeah. the biggest of the biggest. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Buddy's there. I'm shaking his hand. Al says, Buddy, I want you to be Dom, my student, Dom. This is Buddy Rich. And as I'm shaking Buddy's hand, I turn to Alan. And I said, Al, you said I was going to meet a Buddy friend mm-hmm. of yours. This is not a Buddy. This is the Buddy. That's this the is a Buddy. <laughs> yeah. It's great. We got a good laugh out of it. We sat and had dinner. And then about, you know, at a certain time, Buddy says, looks at his watch and goes, hey, guys, we got to get to the gig. So let's, you know, we got five minutes. And I'll drive. We'll take my car. Mm. I'm like, oh, well, the gig. Yeah. This is. The key. He's playing tonight, yeah. So I forgot all the better. So we get outside and there's a like a red Corvette stingray in Al's driveway. And Buddy says, This is great, we'll drive. He says, Dom, you get in the backseat, Al, you get in, I'll drive you guys here and I'll drive you guys home afterwards. Hmm. So like a regular guy. Yeah. So if you know a Corvette stingray, there's really no back seat. It's a two-seater, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm in the back. I, just, I didn't care. I was getting in Buddy's car if my legs had to hang out. Right. <laughs> I get in the car. I'm in the back seat. We start driving. And at one point while we're driving, we play on the driveway. And I said, Geez, I said, guys, I, I, I just so you know, I bought three tickets to the concert tonight to hear Buddy thing. So Buddy turns while he's driving and he goes, well, how stupid is that? He says, <laughs> You're going to sit backstage without. Give me your three tickets. Wow. Wow. I reach in my bucket. I get the tickets out, I hand them up to Buddy. He pulls in front of poor Peter's, and there's a lineup of people buying tickets. Mm-hmm. Buddy gets out of the car, mm-hmm. goes to the last three people in line, gives them my ticket, and says, I'll see you guys front row seven. Sounds Give me- it's back in the car, we drive around the back of the club, we go in the back door, he puts two folding chairs on the side of the stage, and Al and I are sitting there. And all of a sudden, Buddy says, I'll catch you guys after the show, and he would walk back to the band. Mm. At this point, I turned to Alan. and I said, Al, what the freak is this all about? Right. This is, how did you know Buddy? Why did you tell me you was going to be Buddy? Right. I don't know, This is He says, if I told you you were going to be Buddy Rich, and you told some friends, it would have been uncomfortable. right? He said, so, it's great that you just met him this way. And he said, I met Buddy, we became friends in World War II. We were in the Marines together. Mm. And we were partnered together in World War II. Wow. Amazing. Marie, so Buddy was his partner. Yeah. And effectively, we were both drummers from New York. We hit it off. And since we got out of the war in 45, he said, We've been dear friends. Whenever Buddy comes to town, he calls me up and I go to hear band. 1971. And I am like, and I am like as high as you can imagine. Yeah. From now having the chance to have met this, this legend, this phenomenal player. Absolutely. He was just Regular guy, a mm-hmm. great, great guy. We heard that concert that night. Mm-hmm. He he blew us away two sets. Yeah. We finished. We got back in the car. We drove home. Had a cup of coffee at Al's house afterwards. Then he left to go meet the band at the hotel. Mm-hmm. And that was mm-hmm. it. And I had a chance to meet Buddy and experience that same situation by going backstage. Probably, I, I, I have to say, easily fifty to maybe a hundred times. I mm-hmm. mean, wow. In, in the tri-state area, whether he was in. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, or Boston area. Mm. I would get the call, we'd hop
1: in the car, we'd drive up. It's incredible. They'd go to hear own place, so it was amazing. It's an incredible gift to a young musician. Uh, that must have been so inspiring. Uh, you know, for you, was it around that time that you decided you really want to do this as a career, as a passion, more than just for fun or for... I mean, it's always fun, obviously, it's drumming, but when did that moment happen for you? It, it was. That was. That was a spark. That was a changing really moment because what that
0: showed me was I saw the reality of what the potential was of doing what you love doing. Yeah. And I to playing music. I remember I was a professional from the age of 12. So in the past six years I'm playing and I'm working gigs and I'm doing, I'm making money doing it. So I'm getting it and I'm doing this here. So now all of a sudden I realized, boy, this could be a profession. Yes. If I really, if I really buckle down and learn the craft and learn the skills of drumming, and learn the mm. skills of business. Mm. So mm-hmm. Those two, yeah. Then I, I can put together a lifelong career yeah. in doing what I love doing. Yeah. And it was mm-hmm. really amazing, because what I saw something at backstage at a Buddy concert. Mm-hmm. You meet three types of people, mm-hmm. and this table was because it, it, it taught me about the business of music. Okay. First, you meet all the top drummers that come to see Buddy. Mm. Backstage at Buddy shows. There were always top drummers. I met Max Roach, mm-hmm. I met Jim Chapin, wow. Morello, uh, Carl Poppins, Steve Gadd, Tony Williams, wow. you know, uh, Roy Haynes, Poppin' Jump Phones. Every different show, so some other drummer would show up backstage and we'd get to meet them and talk to them. So, And I saw this camaraderie of drummers that were hugging each other and sharing ideas on a practice band talking and complimenting each other. It was a beautiful brotherhood. Yeah. It's a real positive message. Mm-hmm. The second kind of people you meet were big band leaders. Okay. I went to meet Duke Ellington, Count Basie, wow. Betty Goodman. Mm. I met Stan Kenton.
2: Mm.
0: These guys that would come by if they were in the area and just to hear Buddy play a few tunes or his first set. Yeah. Ellington, Duke Ellington would walk in and sit down with us at the side of the stage and just sit and tap. And play. When Buddy would come off stage. He would give him a hug and, and Duke would shake our hands and talk to us. So it was just to experience these. these Absolutely, was, was magical. The third kind of person you met were, was the Rat Pack. But mm. Buddy was friends with Sinatra, Dean Martin, Jerry yeah. Lewis, Joey Bishop, Mel Torme, wow. Dean Martin, mm. yeah. Sammy Davis Jr., and they'd all show up. You'd be at a club in New York, and Sammy Davis Jr. was sitting next to us. Yeah. And 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 th- these were these were yeah, legends. Huge yeah. movie and television legends celebrity stars. They were bigger yes. than mine. Sure. And 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 and, and you know, Seaman Davis Jr. was you know, four foot ten. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, and, and, and you met him and and then I had the chance to even talk to him. Jerry Lewis, I say is, he's still around, at least at that time was a phenomenal drummer. Jerry Lewis. Phenom, not not just a, a phenomenal drummer, Fantastic. A, you know, Fantastic. Of a of him on YouTube playing with Buddy Rich. Wow, doing, playing drums, but doing some comedy stuff. Mm. And Jerry became uh, Jerry Lewis's daughter's godfather. That's amazing. Kathy Rich's Godfather is Jerry Lewis. Wow. So th- the connection of this backstage thing, you know, I'd come home and I said to my parents, like I shook Sinatra's hand tonight. Yeah, right. But like <laughs> yeah. I came back thing, we shook the freaking guy's hand. Right. And it was right. sort of same Sinatra. So you know, it, these, but it proved me that these were regular people. Yeah. Right. These guys come back, hug Buddy, compliment them. how you doing, how's the family? Mm. You play great, pump them up, compliment them, and then go on to their own path. So I got a chance to see mm. the music business backstage, and it was something that totally said to me. What an incredible group of people. Right. Now, imagine being involved with this and to feel that level of, of camaraderie. I said, I would love to be a part of it. What a gift for a young musician, right? It's amazing. It was. And that, I think that's what Al Miller saw. Al saw the fact that that he was kind of in this clique, so to speak. Yeah. And if he brought me into this clique, he knew that this would be the continuing of the, the legacy and the story, that here it is literally almost 17 years after Al's passed, yeah. And I'm still talking about Al like he's alive yesterday. And and Buddy and these guys still stay alive because of these stories that's passed on through me that I get the chance to pass on now with you, Dave, and musicians on the record, that hopefully this will be online mm-hmm. forever right. to
1: see and learn from and hopefully, hopefully be inspired from. Absolutely. And certainly, so it sounds like Al Miller was a uh, pivotal, a really important teacher in, in your life as, as well as just, I mean, I can't imagine being backstage or watching Buddy Rich play, seeing his technique, his, his bass drum, cause you hear some of these things, but then when you actually see somebody live or a video, you go, Oh, that's what they're doing. You must've just learned so much right there. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. it gave me video before there was video. Right, that's great.
0: It, it, it gave me the up-close look yes. at what they were doing before we even had the technology to get there. Absolutely, yeah. That's I always tell students, go to hear live music. Mm. This brain is your first computer that, right. that is taking this information. Right, that's what Al did. And but there was a, a, my, one of my teachers, Ronnie Benedict, was a great, great teacher of the Okay. My name was a show drummer lived on Long Island, suburban Long Island, drove into New York. He backed up Bob Hope and different people. Wow. First call for that. Al Miller was doing these big shows in New York, and Charlie Perry, another phenomenal small group player, he played after Gene had left Benny Goodman. He played with Benny Goodman for like three or four years. Mm. Played, Gene was a local Long Island player, and he was a great group player. He actually he taught Tony Williams when Tony Williams would come to New York. He would come to Charlie Perry's studio, so I would take some lessons with Charlie Perry. And, I, and I, I pay money to go hear Tony Williams playing with Miles Davis, sure. and this morning at 10 o'clock, you know, I see you know Tony Williams leaving at 9 o'clock in the morning from a lesson from Charlie Perry. Wow. And I'm like, well, what the freak is this about? Right. Well, these three guys, Charlie Perry, Al Miller, and Lonnie Benedict, were the three Long Island guys that gave me the confidence and
1: opened up doors for me to say, I think I can do this. So you make this decision that you want to make music your career. You've met all of these amazing musicians. You've got these amazing teachers. Uh, When you've made that decision, what kind of challenges or obstacles came up for you along your professional path that maybe tried to get in your way or discourage you a little bit? Great, great question, uh, and it's a great question because there are always
0: going to be obstacles that are going to challenge us. Yeah. And what I had to learn is when that wall was put in front of me, mm. and that obstacle was there, I had to make a decision: Do I want to climb over the wall? Do I want to dig under it? Do I want to try and run around it? Or do I want to break through it? Mm. But I had to understand the tool, and I use this word as a tool: the tool of perseverance. Speech. to never give up. Quitting is not an option. Mm-hmm. I had to learn that tool when these obstacles hit me. Here I am on Long Island. I'm backstage one day at a buddy show. And who sits next to me? Joe Morello. The
2: mm-hmm.
0: Dave Brube a quartet playing on the Ed Sullivan show, television shows. I've got the albums. I've got Morello sitting next to me. And, and Morello, who was legally blind, had his dog mm-hmm. Matthew with him, with the seeing eye dog. Okay. And, um, and so here he comes in with this dog. I'm sitting in the middle. Al Miller's to my left. And I'm sitting in between Al Miller and Morello. Hmm. I'm sitting there. And I'm kind of experiencing this, this this excitement of it. Like I'm going, my God, this is up. So, I'm sitting with you know, my teacher, Al yeah, Miller. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> Morello, who I'm, talking, I'm listening to all of his albums. We're watching <laughs> Buddy. I said, God, this is incredible. Well, <laughs> so that night, Buddy played a solo in the first set that was so... He went like above and beyond, he always played great, but mm. knowing that Morello and Al were there yeah. on the he turned up the, the notch a little.
2: Yeah.
0: What I mean by that is he played like a 20 minute solo on the snare drum, mm. during a, oh, didn't go to any cymbals or toms. Stayed in the snare drum, wow. and that solo on the snare drum with dynamics and high mm-hmm. jokes and, and playing. He brings an audience of 2,000 people to their feet, screaming and yelling, unbelievable i a snare drum solo. Right. And I'm on the edge of my seat and I'm going, what the heck is You're going right. on? Like,
2: he's
0: playing high and low strokes. And he's playing accents all over the place and singles. And he plays the solo, counts the band back in. The band comes in, mm. finishes the solo, Tells the band, thank you so much. I'll see you in a half an hour for a second set and walks off the stage. Mm. I sit back and I go, what the heck just happened? Right. So I lean up and I said, and, and, and I said that to Al. I said, I said, I said guys, and I look over at Joe and I said, what the hell do? What did you do? What did we just witness? So Al, my teacher, goes, I got to tell you something. I have no idea what the heck he just did. Wow. Said, I have no idea. He just he just turned on an ingredient that I've never seen before.
2: Mm.
0: Morello turns over, crosses his arms, and says this. He played a series of low strokes, half strokes, and <laughs> yes. pull-outs and control strokes, playing the free stroke and molar. Wow! So I start laughing. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh. I said, "Wow, that's funny." <laughs> he broke it down. Joe says, "Why are you laughing?" <laughs> and I said, "Because I said, I said, Mr. Rebel, that just sounded so academic. Right. The way I don't like that." <laughs> he says, "Well," he said to me. That's what he did.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now my New York came out. I said, okay, yeah. wait a second. <laughs> Say that again yeah. a little slower. Right. He right. Right. says he played a series of low strokes, half strokes, and full strokes. Okay. Playing the free stroke, the rebound, and Mulker, Mm-hmm. In pullouts, two notes, soft tap, loud accent. Mm-hmm. Control strokes, two notes, accent to low stroke. Mm-hmm. They've so been a series of all that together in his playing. Mm. You see the expression. Those are the tools. That's what he did. Yeah. I said, oh my gosh. Yeah. Said, That's fantastic. Yeah. So at that point, Al then leans over and says, Dom, listen, you've been with me now for a while. Maybe it's best you start studying with Mr. Morello. Mm.
2: Mm.
0: So I turned to Joe and I said, this is Missouri. Is it possible if you have any openings of your time? Mm. He said, absolutely. Wow. I his number gives me his number, I write it out, the store he was teaching at, which was called Dornet, D-O-R-N, Dornet Dorn Kirshner. Okay. He gives you the number, I write it, I says, call me tomorrow, we'll schedule a lesson. Yeah. My pocket, Buddy comes back and finishes up, the next day I call Morello, the next day on that Tuesday, I'm driving to New Jersey to take a lesson with Morello. Wow, wow, amazing. We get the first lesson, we come in, Joe remembers me from the night before, but well, wasn't that great with Buddy, it was great, thank you so much, the whole thing. And he says, now what do you want to work on? I said, Mr. Morello, all of those things you talked about, that's what I want to learn. Right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Both things, the low half, boom. Charles, the yeah. free I want all that stuff. He said, okay, let's begin. And that began the journey of how the, the foundation that Al and Ronnie and Charlie gave me was the right foundation I needed to then sit with Morello. Yeah. From Morello, then I went to Jim Chapman. Then I moved to California and went to Shelley Mann and Louis Belson and Colin mm. Bales. Wow. Then I came back to New York and met up with the guys like Ted Reed and Ronnie Lang mm. and Henry Adler and and all these guys opened me up to an incredible depth of knowledge that I was getting at a younger age that I thought everyone learned this way. Mm. Yeah. Realized as I began to travel around the world. Nobody had all this information and that began my journey as old class. So, so that, at that point, you know once starting with Borella and his teachers, that you know that began to change my
1: planning the whole thing. So can you can you talk a little bit about Jim Chapin, your relationship with him, what you learned from him as a drum teacher and student? Absolutely. Jim Jim was actually lived here on Long Island and mm-hmm. he lived in Sag Harbor, which is further
0: east than where I live. Mm-hmm. And I kind of live in the, in the, in the middle of Long Island. Long Island is shaped like a fish, you know, and then yeah. I'm kind of in the middle. And Jim shape was further towards the tail of the fish. Okay. And the head of the fish was Queens, that was close to, mm-hmm. to, to New York City. Mm-hmm. Jim, I, I met Jim in the early days, you know, again, at backstage with Buddy. Mm-hmm. And um, I was with Morello at the time. And while I was, was with, with Morello learning this free stroke and this George <laughs> Lawrence Stone rebound, it was then Joseph that you're ready for, for Chapin to learn molar. So mm-hmm. I was I started studying with Jim while I was still with Morello and continued that ongoing, you know, double hit yeah. of of lessons going on. And Morello kinda of gave me the the actual, you know, free stroke and the wrist George Lawrence Stone focus, while Jim Chapin, who was the best student from Sanford Molar, kinda of gave me the bigger technique and these bigger arm motions. Mm-hmm. So with Jim, Jim was a student of Sam Moeller back in 1938, and as the story goes, Jim was a young kid, Jim was born in 1920, he's 18 years old, he goes to see Gene Krupa play at the Metropole, which was a very famous jazz club in New York City at the time and Gene played there a lot. Mm-hmm. At the Metropole, Jim sees you know Krupa and just is blown away by the magic, and Jim had never played drums before, wow. the, with a girlfriend sees Gene play, mm. and the show walks up to him and says, Mr. Krupa, I'm so impressed with your playing. I want to play drums the rest of my life, and I want you to be my teacher. Wow. <laughs> the fact that he was that inspired, yeah. that, that kind of a nerve to say to Mr. Krupa, yeah. I want you to be my teacher. Right. That's like walking up to Steve Gadd right now. Right. <laughs> and and said, man, Steve Gadd, you're great. I want you to be my teacher. It's like, you know, <laughs> Gene, who was an absolute saint as a person, said to Jim, uh, boy, thank you so much. I'm complimented that you would want me to teach you. He said, but I'm not really teaching now. I'm busy traveling. He said, but I'm going to give you the name of my teacher, Sanford Augustus Moeller. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: His number, and it was in 1938 that Jim then started studying with Moeller, and uh, Moeller lived in Queens, Long Island. Mm -hmm. Jim's mother had a place in Queens at the time where Jim was living, and then Jim ended up moving out to Southampton when Jim got married. So in the early days, Jim was living in Queens, studying with Moeller, getting together with all these great, great players because he lived near New York, and uh, and learned this process. So Jim became now the carrying on of the torch of this Moeller teaching until eventually when Moler stopped teaching, because he felt they got too old, and turned it over to Jim. He recommended all of his students to Jim. Mm-hmm. To the point that, Moler went to a Gene Krupa concert back in the, in the, the mid to late 50s, and when Jim was playing, Mola had talked to Gene Hippon and said, listen Gene, you want to get your shoulders a little bit more relaxed and mm-hmm. keep your elbows in more, mm-hmm. help you out some more. He mm-hmm. so said, oh Mr. Mola, man, thank you so much, you are always helping me out, that's great advice. He said, I'm going to come back for lessons. And Mola said, Gene, I'm sorry, I'm not teaching anything anymore. If you want to learn my technique, you got to go to Jim Chapman. Mm-hmm. So Gene now calls up Jim. Oh God. <laughs> Turn around. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, Cooper calls up Jim. Wow. So Jim, Jim says, so I get a phone call. All right, my name is Gene Cooper and I want lessons. So I said, I said, Jim, that's amazing. What'd you do? He said, I hung up. <laughs> right. That was a crank call. I <laughs> yeah, oh, this guy called me say, he said, yeah, I hung up. I said, well, what, what do you mean? What happened? He goes, immediately. I picked it up again and he said, don't hang up. Don't hang right. up. And I got a number from MOLAR. Wow. This is Gene Cooper. Amazing. So, when Jim said, Well, what do you call me? He said, I want to come back and take some lessons. So, I've got a picture here in my studio that is a picture of Gene around the time he was studying with Jim. Wow. That Jim gave me. And that it was mm. amazing how mm. have that Gene then went back in the 50s to study with Jim to get this technique down and fine tune it, which just showed yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the fact that, you know, Gene was still looking to learn and grow mm. mm-hmm. in the later part of his life. Yeah. That to me is the message, David. That's mm-hmm. the mess that Chapin shows. So I get to meet Chapin, and I'm stuck with Chapin, and I'm having an incredible time. And Jim became a dear friend that I became actually very good friend with Jim. To the fact that later on in his life, when Jim passed away, uh, you know, the, 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 the days before he passed away, he signed over his books and all of his products to mm-hmm. me to take the, the custodian. Amazing. The mm-hmm. And I organize it and, and, and send you know checks to the family and, and yeah. keep Jim's name alive, traveling around the world. Mm-hmm. His product and doing his thing, and uh, an interesting story about Jim. A quick story is that, when Jim was uh, was ill. He moved down to Florida. The weather was nice and he was in a in, a, in kind of like a was, was first thought as a rehab a place, mm-hmm. and became a nursing home for him. Okay. But he ended up having to stay there. and um, So I would travel down to Florida once a month if I could just to get a flight to go down there. and With all my points of traveling, I'd just go down there either by myself or with my wife and just go down and just see Jim and spend some time with him and come back. And, and I was organizing his books and his finances for him. So I would go down to update Jim about his finances and what he was doing and stuff like that and give him a check and, and just keep in tune with what's happening. Yeah. So one of the last last visits was on July 3rd. Uh, 2009, and when I got down to the, to the to the hospital slash nursing home, one of the doctors met me at the door, and he said, uh, he said, he said, I know you come here a lot. I've seen you here many times, and I've spoken to him before." He said, "It doesn't look good for Jim. It's it's you know he's really he's really getting ill. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to know before you go up there and see him." Mm-hmm. Wow, I said, "Boy, thanks so much." I said, "Well, we knew this was happening. He was declining in the process." So let, let let's go up and see him. Mm-hmm. So we are taking the elevator up, and I said, "Well, it'll be good to kind of." just see him and, and I'm kind of like preparing myself. Yeah. Elevator door opens. As we're walking towards Jim's room, we hear a practice pad being played. Wow. Like, blazing. Amazing. Blazing. I, I mean, bigger. It, it's it's like this. It, <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's like along the way. Incredible. So I said to the doctor, I said, well, this is great. man. one of the students is here playing for him. How great is this? <laughs> Walk in the room and it's Chapin sitting up in bed with a pad on his lap. He's wow. playing Match Grip. Wow. Wow. That's match cool. Grip. He played traditional for a good part of his life. Mm-hmm. Match yeah. Grip. And he's playing, and I, I turned to the doctor as I got to the door, and I said to the doctor, This is the guy that's on his last thread. <laughs> and the doctor goes, This is incredible. Wow. So I, I walk up to Jim, and as I always did when I saw Jim, I kissed him on his forehead and say, Jim, I said, I love seeing you. I said, I gotta ask you, Jim. What are you doing? Right. <laughs> he very inquisitive and said, I'm practicing. Mm-hmm. I'm practicing. He said, You know something? My matchup is getting a lot better. <laughs> so at that point, he was improving tremendously. So we had a wonderful talk, a hang session. I kissed him again on the forehead and left. And it was just it was so inspiring of what it was. I get back home that night. And the next morning, I got the call that you had passed. And here's what's interesting. At the meeting that I had with Jim, in the hospital, he said to me, and he just brought this up on his own, he said, you know, Dom, I want you to know, my two most influential writers, Now, Jim was a very well-read, genius, genius blood. He had a very, extremely high IQ. Mensa mm-hmm. Menza used to call him all the time to join Menza. Mm-hmm. Oh. And he would decline them because he didn't want to get involved with that stuff. But, he, but I think this, Menza so call him. Yes. Yeah high IQ organization that's calling Jim Chapin right yeah and it's powerful so and Jim said to me my two favorite writers were John Adams and Thomas Jefferson Mm -hmm. and this is July 3rd Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I said wow Jim I said that's interesting I said why would they be the two greatest writers why would you know, Joyce or all these other great sure. writers, why wouldn't they? Why would John Adams and Thomas Jefferson? Yeah. He said, because they wrote a document that lasted through time, yeah. still is relevant. Sure. He said, it's kind of like my book. My book is still strong. Mm. Advanced Techniques for the Modern German. It's still going strong at this day. So I said, wow, Jimmy, said, that's very interesting. I'm going to do, do more research into those guys. Mm. So I kiss them, I leave, and I go. So I get back home. So now the next day is July 4th. Mm. Oh. I get the phone call that Jim Chapman died. Now we call Jim the father of independence because of his book.
1: Right. That's, that's not independence. <laughs> that's, that's unbelievable. Right. Yep. And he tells
0: me that the two guys, his favorite writers, yep. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Now here's where history comes in. Mm. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, the composers of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, mm-hmm. both died on the same day in 1826. Is that on right?
1: On July 4th. On July 4th. That's incredible.
0: The 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Hmm. They died on the same day, just a few hours apart. That's amazing. It's almost like Jim was setting me up to say, Hmm. I'm going out tomorrow. Right.
1: The father of independence died on Independence Day. And that's the power of drumming, right? Right till the very end, the last day he was doing it. That's incredible. Absolutely. So it was a pretty pretty incredible you know, scenario to witness in the apartment. It's an amazing story. Now, I didn't realize this. I'm sure a lot of people do, but until we started talking and I started watching some videos with Jim Chapin, this is Harry Chapin's dad we're talking about, right? Absolutely. Harry Chapin, wow. who I had the
0: chance to meet many times, Harry Chapin, a great songwriter, Cats in the Cradle, yes. Axies, yeah. Pows. Yeah. Harry lived here on Long Island in a town called... Huntington,
2: mm-hmm.
0: not that far from where I was living. Mm-hmm. Jim would get together with me all the times, so, you know. And because he was on the on the east coast of Long Island, he would drive past my house, always stop at my house for a kind of a, a pit stop, and then drive on to New York where he, wherever he'd go. Yeah, so I had the chance of meeting Jim with Harry on many occasions, and Harry was a just a phenomenal person mm-hmm. and a cool writer, And I had get a chance to research Harry and just listen to the lyrics of his songs and his music. Yeah. Very powerful guy. And Harry always said, and he goes, you know, I got involved with music because dad, meaning Jim,
2: mm-hmm.
0: the time he came home from performing, he was always happy. Yeah. yeah, He's always in a good mood. He said, my memories of my father was he was always happy. He was always fun to be around with. It was always about music and the joy of life. Yes. And I said, I want to be a part of it. Sure. So Harry put his focus and lyrics and songwriting into what he did and became a very powerful force. In the, in, in the music community,
1: it's amazing. I, I've heard the story uh, in, in other places, but will you tell the story of uh, Jim Chapin and Washington D.C.? Do you know the story I'm talking about with Jimmy Carter? I believe. The, oh, this the, is Harry,
0: Harry Chapin's
1: story. Yes, yes, yes. yes. yes that that yes. Harry, that Harry, and, and Jim uh,
0: told me. Yeah, this, this is a, a, a powerful line for many reasons. That that you know, Harry Chapin, inspired by his father to see what his father did by writing these, this drum book that was so powerful, mm-hmm. and playing drums and teaching having such an incredible influence in the music and drumming world, yeah. that Harry started to get involved. So as Harry built his career, Harry started traveling around America, mm-hmm. and when Harry traveled into different cities in America, he started to see many you know poor people and many people that were dying of starvation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, they just didn't have enough food. And Harry just couldn't comprehend that. that in America, yeah. the abundance of what America has that there can be people that are dying of starvation, right. kids. Right. And, and this right. really bothered Harry, and he felt yes. that he had to use his, his power of his music to help look on that. So he began to see these different cities, and then he began to do research in other nations, mm. see what's happening in England, mm. in, Italy, in France, that tons of poverty people that were dying of starvation mm. in these wealthy countries. Yeah. So Harry now... This is back now in 77.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: He's got a number one song. He's on every television show. Yeah. At the time, Johnny Carson, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, all these afternoon and evening talk shows. Harry was there. TV specials. Harry was a huge star. Mm-hmm. And, and I knew him from Long Island. Yeah. So <laughs> but Harry makes a meeting with President Carter.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And he wants to talk to him. So because of the different congressmen and senators that he knew, they were able to set up a meeting with Harry Chapman. Harry was a top of the star in the music industry. The president felt this was good to meet with Harry to see what Harry wanted to talk about. Harry meets with Carter, they walk into the Oval Office, and Harry says, uh, President Carter, wonderful to meet you. He said, I've got a request that I have. I want you to start a world hunger organization. Start to displace and feed people here in America, in this wealthy nation, that we children and adults starving with no food. Yeah. This is absolutely unacceptable in the, in a country that we live in like America. Yes. So President Carter said back says, well Harry I didn't know this is what your request was and that's a pretty powerful request. He said uh, you know I'll, I'll start looking into this focus and see what we can do. So Harry says well I have a document here that I put together with a lawyer that I want you to sign and when you sign this here it's going to have you commit Putting this world organization to get together mm-hmm. by other countries and making this happen. Yeah. The president Carter says, "Well, Harry, that, that's that's wonderful that you've done that." He said, he says, you know, I, I'll, what I'll do is i will have a team of people look at this and analyze it, and then we'll get to it." Mm-hmm. And Harry sat up and said, um, no, "Mr. President, I don't think you understand. I need you to decide this now. Start this because as we're speaking, people are dying of starvation." Mm-hmm. President Carter said, "Well," he said, "Mr. He said, listen, listen, Harry." This is really not the way it works out. Mm. He said, we've got we to put together a team of people. we got to contact the countries. we got to do some research. Mm. This is time to put together. And Harry says, I don't think you understand how it works out. In yeah, well. this conversation, young kids are dying of starvation. He said, so Harry goes, sign the contract. Mm. And he is told, so President Carter says, Harry, he says, Mr. President. And Harry sat back in his chair and said, I'm not even until you sign mm-hmm. it. You want me out of the White House? You're yeah. gonna have to throw me out physically. I don't think that's look too good in public. That's right. That's right. Really Press. Yeah. So Carl leans up and says, "You're holding me hostage." Mm-hmm. And Harry said, "Sir, you call it what you want. Mm-hmm. Sign the contract and let's start putting money towards feeding these kids." Absolutely. And step back and said, "Harry, I can see your passion and your commitment." Mm-hmm. It's hard to sign the documents. That's fantastic. Yeah, became <laughs> the beginning of the little hunger problem. Now the story of Harry goes to here now. So Harry, Harry's agent at the time was Ken Craig. Mm-hmm. Ken Craig was a manager who managed Harry Chapin. Mm-hmm. This, you gotta go back, this is in the mid-seventies. Yep. Harry Chapin, he managed a young Michael Jackson. Wow. Lionel Richie, mm-hmm. Hal Filofanti, mm-hmm. and Kenny Rogers. These were all big stars sure. and growing bigger. And yeah. Harry was his clients. Mm-hmm. So Harry wanted Ken to organize these artists to help raise money for the organization. And what Harry was doing was his next album that was going to go out, he talked to the record label and said, listen, I'm going to donate all of my proceeds of the record towards the World Hunger Program. I want you to donate all your money. No one's going to make any money out of it. All the money is going to be funded towards this World Hunger Program to give Carter some money, millions of dollars, to start working on this program. Yeah. So he told Carter, that's what I'm going to do. I want to see what you're going to do. So when Carter saw this, he goes, wow, you've got the music industry behind it, let's make this happen. Mm -hmm. Harry was on the Long Island Expressway, driving into New York to sign the contract for this deal. He got into a car crash that eventually killed him in an accident on the Long Island Expressway at Exit 39. Now, I'm teaching at a drum shop on Long Island with Jim Chapin. I'm in room one, Jim's in room two. Mm-hmm. And we I would drive with Jim, I'd pick him up, and we go we teach, and then go out to the bike to eat after dinner, and then I'd drive Jim home. Yeah. And so here we are, we're in it. So while we're there, I had a break for a student. I'm standing by the phone, the store was busy, the phone rang, I answered it. I would never answer the phone, but I answered it. How you doing, this is Dom speaking, whatever. And it was Jim's wife,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Mania. She called him, she goes, Dom, this is Manya. I need to speak to Jim. There was a car crash on the L.A.E. and we think it was Harry. Mm-hmm. I said, whoa, hang on one second. Now I got to go into the room. It's yeah. Jim's lesson. Mm-hmm. So I get Jim out of the lesson. He comes to the phone. And the first call from Mindy was, they think it was Harry. I'm going to have a detective call you. Mm-hmm. So he had no identification on him. Mm-hmm. But when they drive the car and the license plate, Mindy said, I recognize him. So now he hangs up from Mindy, goes back into the room to teach and I'm standing there and he he's filming in what was going down. And I was like, oh my God. Now we're hearing on the radio. Oh God. Accident on the Long Island Expressway, you know, a helicopter, it takes a person to East Meadow, you know, you know, you know hospital. Yeah. And we hear all the backup traffic. And we're going, oh man, it's going to be a mess on the road tonight. There's this accident. Yeah. Next call comes in. I answer the phone. This is detective so-and-so. I need to speak to Jim Chapin. Mm-hmm. One moment, sorry. I put the phone down. I am back in the room. I get Jim. Jim comes back out. Mm-hmm. Sits down, picks up the phone, and the detective said, "Mr. Chapman, we found something." He says, um, "This person that we are analyzing is deceased. He's passed away. Mm-hmm. We have no identification, but we have a gold pocket watch." He said. So Jim said, "Yeah, that's the pocket watch I gave." He says, "Can you tell me what the inscription is in it?" Mm-hmm. He said, "To Harry, my loving son, Jim." Mm-hmm. And the detective said, "This is your son." We need to come here to identify the body. Awful. Yeah. Tim tells me this, hangs up the phone, tells me this here, and then gets in his car and is, and it's got to drive to the hospital. Too. So this was what went down with Harry. So now what happened is Harry now is on his way going to do this here. So when Ken Cragan gets the news and this whole thing goes down with Harry's death, it's on the news. It's on on, on you know CNN. You name it. Every year. so now Ken Cragan decides to take two of his clients. To have them write a song mm-hmm. that can raise money. Mm-hmm. He sits down with Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie says, guys, that's a song.
2: Yeah.
0: Write We are the World. Mm-hmm. They put together that video image that we recognize from all those years, yeah. of getting all those artists together, yep. sing the song to dedicate I And mean, if you ever watch the the clip of that, mm-hmm. it says, we got the world dedicated to the late great Harry J. It's wow. amazing. So amazing. he's different than his life. Yeah. But he something so passionate. And it was music that gave
1: him the chance to open up his eyes. Absolutely. To, pause to make a difference. And you think about how many people, you know, he wanted to help people and feed people through the power of his music. But even through his death, look how many people he fed and helped and inspired with that music. It's amazing. Absolutely. When you yeah. think about the power of that and the, the intensity of of that
0: wave that was started, yeah. that to this day we still have this program happening, right. that started by one single passionate effort Absolutely. that took action. Yeah. You know, I always say in the music industry when I go to different traveling around the world and I meet different musicians or different music store owners or people in the music industry, they begin to complain about oh, the music industry is changing and the recording industry is changing and the the. the the kids are not learning, and the internet and the technology—it's all changing, and they all complain about it. Right. I have a line that I said: "Listen, guys, you know, complaining without action mm-hmm. is is whining. Mm-hmm. Right. Don't whine. Yeah. Make a change. Put action behind your your cause that you see and yeah. make different. That's what right. Harry did, and that's what Jim did by writing his book and going
1: out and teaching and doing." All that Jim did. Can we talk a little bit about that, too, the business side? I mean, you've been in the business uh, as a, a professional drummer, as a, a teacher, instructor, for 40 years? Well, yeah, well, actually, as a professional player, um, since the age of 12, that's 51 years 51 so far. in years, amazing. But yeah.
0: i started teaching at the age of 17, so we're talking about you know, 46 years wow. of, me, uh, of, me, uh, of me doing this. Actually, at the moment, at least 17 years old. Yeah, so I mean, think about the amount of time that I put into this thing here. It's been pretty amazing to experience this journey of 46 years of teaching. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: that's incredible. How has the business part of it changed since I imagine, you know, I don't know what you were earning at 12, but, you know, what have you seen change in the business over time?
0: It's changed. From the economy standpoint, the business has changed. I mean, I'm obviously charging more now as a performer and as a teacher, sure. than what I was in the beginning days, Just because the economy changed, sure. and my skill base changed, and how I'm able to sell myself. But I've learned to balance three different sides, David, that that allows my perspective to enjoy my life. And that's the performance side as an artist. Mm-hmm. So that I have to keep on developing my skills as an artist. Mm-hmm. Second part is my, are my business skills. Mm-hmm. I have learned my business skills, my marketing, my managing, my brand, my website, my social media, all of my reach, I've got to learn as an author of different books, as a publisher of these books, I've got to learn the business skills to get that information out. My teaching practice, I've got over 2,500 students wow. that contact me from 30 countries. Wow. In itself, it's been overwhelming. So my teaching yes. practice, with me doing clinics, still doing clinics, I leave next week for Zurich, Switzerland for two days, and then three in Italy. Wow. So five days in Europe, Every day, you know, different city, yeah. different country, mm. and then I'm back home. So this year has been my most traveled year mm. 220,000 miles on Delta Airlines. That's probably about five, six, or seven times around the globe. Right. <laughs> This year, they should
1: just give you a free seat on the plane, right? A plane! What? (laughs) Give you a plane, right? (laughs) (laughs) absolutely.
0: And also, I'm busier than ever at 63, so my career is still being reinvented and still growing. So, the first side is the artist side, the second side is the business side, the third side is the personal side. Mm. That I wanted to have a, a, a family, a wife, I've got three boys and I want to have a house and some cars and live in suburbia Long Island that I can have a life. Yeah. That didn't make me constantly look over my shoulder not knowing who to pay my landlord because I, I didn't have the money for him. So right. I wanted to secure my business of what I did <laughs> in the industry to create a wave of of constantly growing as an artist, constantly growing as a businessman, and constantly growing as a person in my family and my personal life. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's changed because as the business changed, I have changed because I have had the desire to change.
2: Mm.
0: If I say I want to stay and be the kind of the, the Dom Familaro that was Don Familaro 10 years ago, mm. I survived today. Mm. If I try and be the Dom Familaro that was five years ago, I won't survive today. If I mm. try and be the Dom Familaro of even last year,
2: mm.
0: I won't survive today. If I'm not on a constant shift and change and adaption, yeah. By learning new technology in my teaching facility. By learning new ways to teach. Being on top of new drum books that are out Mm -hmm. here, Business stuff. I read different business books about marketing and branding and management. By personal stuff. I read motivational books about Mm self-motivation. So I can keep self-motivated to be. If I'm not doing all of that and constantly growing who I am, I will fail. And, And I want... Success and success has nothing to do with money, right? Right. All to do with my essence of life, mm. which to matter, to make a difference. Right. That's all I want to do. I want to just pay my bills.
1: Yeah. So, how do you balance all of that, Dom? Um, those three major parts of your life, because I read a lot about, and I talk a lot about, with people, about finding some kind of balance. For you, going, playing to China and Switzerland and, and New York, how do you do all that? Well, the first thing I realized,
0: that's a really great question. The first thing I realized is that there is no routine in my life. Hmm. no routine. I, I don't have a comfort zone that, you know, some people, every morning I get up, I have my cappuccino in the morning and I have my my croissant, and I start my day, I read the newspaper, I get in the car, I drive my hour to work, I go to my desk, I do my thing, uh, I get my break, I come back home, I meet my wife, we have our dinner together, we watch a sports show, I drink my beer, I go to bed. The next morning, I get up, I have my coffee with my croissant, yeah. I, go, I <laughs> Every day of my life is completely different. Yeah. So that's the first thing. So I, I took routine out of my life. With that, I've learned that if I can wake up early and go to bed late, I'm going to maximize the amount of, of my life. I really believe sleep is overrated.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: I, I, really believe it. I really believe that we can we can do less with sleep if you have greater purpose in your life. Okay. Mm-hmm. With your purpose, that will drive you up to a higher level of, of, of result and accomplishments, mm-hmm. And to be excited when you sleep, you sleep just enough to give you the energy to continue that excitement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just what I, I yeah. everybody? Yeah. It's just I found. Uh, sure. That now, the balance is everything. In life, I teach it with my students here in my studio. Balance is everything. We have to find that balance. So I gotta find it from the studio in my studio for my students. How much time do you have to practice for what you wanna be? You wanna be a top pro, you're gonna have to give me a lot of hours to put time into it. Sure. You want To be adequate and get your skill base higher, okay, mm-hmm. you, you, know, you gotta give me some time there. So we gotta find out how much time can you practice to become the artist you want to be, yeah. Then there's got to be some time devoted to business skills. Do mm-hmm. you have a website? Mm-hmm. Who's your website? Do you send out a newsletter? Mm-hmm. You know, so you gotta organize the business part, yeah, and you gotta schedule in your calendar how you're going to put time in for that. So, right. For, I'm up at 6 o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. 6.30, quarter to 7, I'm at my desk mm-hmm. and it keeps me time for about an hour to start mapping out my day, to start answering emails, mm-hmm. taking my voice messages and start to map out how I'm going to map out that day. I know my teaching schedule, I have certain breaks in there, I'm going to have lunch with my wife today, I'm going to have dinner with my wife, I'm, I'm not going to have breakfast or lunch with my wife, I'm only going to have dinner, mm-hmm. I'm still going to yeah. teaching. I travel I'm traveling, I'm going to travel to, I'm leaving Friday night, uh, this coming week. Mm-hmm. Fly to Zurich, I leave Friday night at about 7 o'clock, I arrive in Zurich at 9 in the morning. Amazing. I go up to the, to the hotel, go shower and change, go to the venue, set up soundcheck, I play all day Saturday, I play all day Sunday, Monday morning I fly to Italy, set up a sound check when I arrive in Italy, I play Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night in three different cities. Wow. Then I leave Thursday morning to fly back home to New York. So mm-hmm. it's that. So while I'm on the road at that time, my wife, Charmaine, who is my assistant with my organizing of my business, mm-hmm. she handles my schedule. Mm-hmm. She knows in my calendar. I'm away those days. Mm-hmm. And she knows what days to organize my teaching schedule. Mm-hmm. So she puts in my students to my teaching days mm-hmm. that I have in my calendar. Mm-hmm. She puts it in. I might put in my teaching schedule a business day that I need phone calls and business calls. Sure. A business day means no students. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I may put in there a leisure day where I tell my wife, listen, we're taking Wednesday off. We're out of here. I'm taking him to New York City. We're going to get tickets to a Broadway show and we're going to go play around in New York all day. Absolutely. And that's in the schedule. So I've Mm -hmm. learned to balance all of this in the schedule of what I do so we can make this this journey more enjoyable that my family has got balanced because my with, me, with, us, with my wife, yeah. my business is growing, mm-hmm. I, I'm still growing as an artist, if the balance is there, now think about the imbalance in those three areas, when someone comes to me and says, yeah, I'm married, or I've got a girlfriend, and my wife hates my drumming, be
2: mm-hmm.
0: with the band that I love, she hates when I practice, mm-hmm. and and my, my teaching practice is difficult, because when I go there, I, I, I'm always around that, that that negative fact that my wife doesn't support what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm not able to practice because when I'm home so that my artistically my artistic schedule is suffering, my business is suffering, I don't like my personal life. Right. When they say, Dom, what do I do? I say, Man, time to get a new girlfriend. (laughs) Real simple (laughs) can't work it out where she can't or he can't support my female students. That's right. That can't happen you gotta approach that because if that's imbalanced, that's gonna affect your business and your personal. You bet, no. you bet. Now, if that is imbalanced and you've got a wonderful relationship, yeah. they support what you do, Right. big difference in that now. Absolutely. So you gotta find out the relationships that you're in and the band that you're in. If the band is not working and you're the only one coming there as a drummer that's practicing and knowing your parts right. and they're not learning their parts, you gotta either get this band fine tuned on the same page And they have to share the core values of what the purpose of that band is, or they're gotta find a new band or you gotta fire the guitar player. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And that's really what it comes down to. And and you gotta put your big boy and big girl pants on and go there and make these decisions so you can find that balance. I've gone through all of that,
2: Mm.
0: found that balance, and because I found that balance and have stayed on it, my artistic growth is great, my business is growing. And my family life is wonderful. So because of that, balance has to be worked on. And it's, I'm not saying it's easy. Right. Right. And mm-hmm. I tell everybody two things. Nothing's easy. Mm-hmm. And nothing's free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Prepare to earn and work hard
1: mm-hmm.
0: for what you have.
1: Mm-hmm. It's great. It's definitely a great life lesson right there with anything. And I imagine your wife and kids, they don't mind you're your playing, right? If you're practicing, and, right? It's... Well, it, it, when I had my studio in the bottom part of my house in my basement, mm-hmm. when I went and
0: practiced and played, they never questioned it because they knew that's what Dad does. That's right? Yeah, that's right. Then when I my studio, which is my freestanding studio, uh, you know, about 50 feet away from my house, yeah, now this yeah. is the ultimate man cave. I come yeah. out here, and yeah. nobody—it's it's made out of cement. It's a—I built a freaking bunker. That's right. <laughs> so I said, listen, if North Korea is going to attack us. David, you want to get your ass. That's answer. right. I'm coming to your place. <laughs> <laughs> so fantastic. with that, that, that changed also. But my family understands that that that's what I do. You know, my, my oldest son, Dominic, I, I tell the story when he was in kindergarten and he went to school the first day. and It was very emotional for me because here my yes. oldest son going to school and sure. My three boys are twenty one months apart, so yeah. Dominic was, was was five, you know, Jonathan was three and Maxville was kinda of just born and, and and I'm watching these two boys grow up and Dominic goes to school and got his backpack on and he goes to his first day of school and he turns to my wife and I and gives a thumbs up sign yeah. and then cool. goes to school like like I said, My God, he's already yeah. five, he's a young man, you know yeah. he goes to school. So first day of school it's a happy day of school. I've been mm-hmm. my I'm at my office, and also you know he comes home from school, and I get a call from his teacher. Mm. First day of school, uh, Mr. Famularo, I need to speak to you about your son. Mm. Uh, so I stand up and, 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 and by my desk, and I said, oh my gosh! So I, I'm saying to myself, what possibly could she be this intense about?
2: Mm.
0: You know, they finger paint and they freaking take a nap it, and eat cooking. It's kindergarten, right? Yeah. If you do any of that wrong, I'm going. What the heck is going on? So. <laughs> So she, she says to me, she goes, I need to tell you about something that happened in the class with your son today. I said, you have my full attention. Lay it on. Mm-hmm. I was in the class and the kid was sitting in a semicircle and I asked the students, what does your father do for a living? And she said, Sally raised her hand and said, my father is a lawyer that he does for a living and, and, and he plays a little you know, piano on the side and that's what my father does. Mm-hmm. Next kid raised his hand and said, my you know, little Johnny said, my father's an electrician, and he does that and plays a little guitar on the side. So she said, your son raised his hand and said, my dad's a drummer. So my, so she said, so I asked and I said, well your dad's a drummer, that's great that your dad's a drummer. What does he do for a living? How does he earn money? Yeah. So my son says, my dad's a drummer.
2: Yeah.
0: So she goes, she goes Dominic, she goes, Maybe you don't understand the question, <laughs> how to earn money and what he does. Yeah. So she said, at which point your son stood up, looked me straight in the eyes and said, my dad's a drummer, maybe you don't understand the answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Stick it up for you. It's wonderful. So, so That's what he just knew as. Yeah. That's what dad does. That dad does, yeah. So he didn't have to understand the 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 the. the, the, the the, the, the specifics of my of my business. Yeah. He just I went around the world and played drums, right. and, and we have a home. That's fantastic. So she said. So I, she says. So that's what you do. Yeah. You play drums. I said yes. I travel around the world. I play drums. I write books. Yeah. I'm a musician. This is what I do full time. Right. So my guy that is so wonderful. Is it possible? Can you come to the school and play for the kids? She mm-hmm. said absolutely. I would love to do that. And I said, but I got to ask you a question. Did you call up the lawyer? invite them in?" Yeah. And she goes, absolutely not. That's not fun. Music is powerful and the message of music is what I want the kids to feel and enjoy. Mm-hmm. And That was the message. Yeah. The okay. fact that music inspires me with such a high oh, level. I put it there with my drums, played for the kids and I did it for each of my boys, not only in kindergarten, but first grade, second grade, third grade, all through the elementary school kids. Awesome. Even in high school. in high school, I played with the concert band and or the orchestra all their school years, now they're all in college, now they're getting me to invite me to the college band. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so much fun. And that's the magic and excitement of doing something that you love doing, especially involved with the arts. Absolutely. And do any of them play? Play drums or any other instrument? Boys, they, they, they all play drums, they all play piano, they play guitar and trumpet and sax. Mm-hmm. They're all funnily playing it. None of them are taking it seriously as a career. Yeah. But they all know music, and they know that they're, they're, they're 18, 20, and 22. Mm. They know the Beatles, they know Duke Ellington, they know Count Basie, they know Fire, they know Stevie Wonder, they know Blood, Sweat, and Tears in Chicago, they know all the bands that are going on. So they're hip to that, and of course they're hip to all the newer stuff yep. that they influenced influence me with. Yes. Right. So when they talk about a band like OAR, you know, of a revolution, Mm-hmm and they talked about it, I had a chance to meet the guys recently, I said, boy, well, guys, I became aware of you two, my children.
1: Mm. So all this stuff happens in the process by me keeping an open mind yeah. that I'll continue to learn. So the Fambulero musical genes continue, it sounds like. That's really great. That's really <laughs> I, great. And, and, and all three of them are way more talented naturally than I ever was. That's, that's, that's what's amazing. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I was curious, with, with all of your travel, because obviously you travel a lot, It's, it's kind of like being on tour, you know, um, the Beatles didn't tour a lot, a long time, but they toured and you're going from country to country. When I hear people, uh, you know, talk about how do you take care of yourself while you're on tour? What are some of the things you do knowing that you don't necessarily have that daily routine, but what do you do to take care of yourself when you're traveling like that? Uh, Well, great question. David. The first thing is I I try to eat
0: properly. Mm -hmm. So I eat a lot of vegetables and fruit and salads and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I I don't eat that much meat. I you know, and and if I have, I'll have chicken or fish. Like so it's not like I'm a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. but I, I try and keep my consumption. You know, uh, you know, with eating good food, and not a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I try to eat small meals during the day and do that. Whole, you know, I'll have soup. That's something like that i are teaching here. So I, I always try and keep my myself at a at a working, you know, comfortable feeling all the time. Mm-hmm. With, um, you know, with traveling, you know, like when I fly to Europe, I get on the plane mm. and I know I've got a seven-hour flight, i got to get at least five hours of sleep, so I'll come on, I'll, I'll eat on the plane, mm. I'll just go to sleep mm. and just, I'll just I'll put on my plane, and I sit tuck myself in and I'm gone, blanket yeah. over my head and I'm out, yeah. and I wake up when the plane hits the ground. I've got my five-hour sleep, so even though it's a six-hour time change, Mm -hmm. they're at nine o'clock in the morning. It's actually three o'clock in the morning, but I had five hours of sleep, which is enough for me to be able to hit the ground running. So I get there. So I've learned to pace myself. The intensity of getting there at the end of the performance, I try and get to bed and get some decent sleep. Again, eating good food on the road. I'm not a person that's heavily into alcohol. I have a little bit of wine, Mm -hmm. maybe a week, Mm -hmm. and... And I, I keep it at that. I, I I don't do hard liquor. Yeah. So I've learned to maintain that. You know, the course of the year, I'll have maybe six beers. So, so that's not a big part of my lifestyle. Yeah. With that, I keep myself in a physical condition, so I'm able to sleep well and manipulate around the world the way I am, where I can move mm-hmm. around. So it, it, it's a matter of keeping yourself mentally and physically in shape yeah. all the time. And I keep myself positive, even in a negative situation when. With the stress of flying, mm-hmm. I don't think anything pays me. If people are complaining about the flight or whatever it is, I just kind of smile and just say, you know, this is, this is what it is. We're delayed two hours. All right. this is what it is, All right. you know, regular. It's like, and I have a lot of stuff to work on. I've got my laptop with books I'm writing, I've got my you know, iPad to read books that I have, my Kindle books, I've got notes I'm writing, I've got ways to keep me busy. So if I'm sure. delayed, I just utilize that
1: time as office time. And be productive with it. How did you get that way? Because my experience—I mean, you're my teacher. So uh, my experience of you is, you are an extremely positive person. I mean, you wrote the Cycle of Self-Empowerment book to teach others that. Where does that come from for you? Because I don't think that always comes naturally to us. You know, the first thing is I come from a a family of
0: incredible love and and from my parents. My, both of my parents had passed on, and they were—they were just one of the people that they never taught us love. They were too busy showing us. Mm-hmm. The household was like the freaking UN. Yeah. yeah. We had, you know, I, I had, you know, Asian, Black, Muslim musicians. Everybody in mm-hmm. our household. We came in. My mother made pasta. We ate. We rehearsed. It was man, It really was. Yeah. So, so we grew up with this. it was nothing about people. It was about what you brought to the table in life? That's great people. So it was that feeling. Mm-hmm. My parents always said, you know, do what you love doing. Mm-hmm. Be the best of what you can do. So when I said I wanted to go into music, it was like, great, give it a shot. Mm-hmm. And My father wanted to make sure that I was serious about it, so he challenged me to sure. the teachers, you know, he said, you know, that you almost like you have to earn this. Mm-hmm. So I just did it to practicing. I paid for my own lessons. I went... And and, and, and made money from jobs and got my own apartment. Mm-hmm. And then my father finally realized, "Wow, this is what you want to do, yeah. and you're on your own." Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to support you 100. Yeah. So old school was I had to earn that. Respect. Yeah. Yeah. You earn something, you take possession of it. You yeah. own it. Right. Yeah. You own that. When you own it, you mm-hmm. now have possession of something that is yours. Yeah. It's very powerful. So mm-hmm. What they taught. So the cycle of self-empowerment came about because. I've always had this positive drive to go. Hmm. I've always had a growing career. Hmm. I'm traveling around the world, starting to hear the same kind of questions being asked to me about, how do you stay positive? How do you have hmm. passion? How do you have this energy all day? Yeah. I begin to, when I begin to tell these people how I did it, hmm. I begin to realize that I'm telling the same story. i got to write this stuff down because sure. I've <laughs> right. to put this into a book and then That's there you go. So what happened? I wrote this stuff in the book, Maybe. and so now I'm working on my next book called Owning Now, and I'm co writing that with my oldest son, Dominic, who's a writer. It's fantastic. And it's together about owning the moment, understanding what the moment means and what's the magic and the value of that moment. Like, we're talking right now. This is live on Skype. Maybe. We're in your studio. Musicians on the record. I'm in my studio, The wisdom of Trump shed. Where you are in Maine, where I am on Long Island, yeah. and this is happening right now. Right, This moment is magic. And as people watch this recording in months and years and decades later, yeah. I'm long gone. Yeah, I want them to still feel the magic of this moment, that it's alive and well right now, even though I might not be around right. in the physical sense, mm-hmm. that they will still be able to inspired by the sound of my voice and the words that I'm saying to push themselves to the next level, that the journey continues this. It's huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so
1: Absolutely.
0: Book, all that.
1: It's fantastic. Yeah, because it'll be their moment in the now for them in the future, listening to you, hearing you, right? And, and when they hear me, they might not know
0: who I am. Mm-hmm. They have to the tune into musicians on the record. They like but you're doing. They hear this guy, Don Famularo. I have no idea who he is. They might go to the internet or whatever it's called at that time. That's right. And do research that I'm typing right now, but it might be a matter of like my boys do. Uh, Siri, who's Don Famularo? That's right. <laughs> and all of a sudden, all the stuff comes in. Exactly. Exactly. So I, when you're accessing it, they might say, well, this guy was a drummer and, uh, and, and what he did. And they might watch this, and as they watch this, they might pull something out of it in a their moment at that time mm-hmm. that just like I go through Jim Chapman's book yeah. and still find magical experiences in that when I'm playing. Mm-hmm. And even though I've been to the book many times, I open it up again now from a different perspective and I play, you know, a page out of it. All of a sudden I go, oh man, that is cool. Now I'm playing it open hand with my left hand. Oh, that was so cool. That's a whole different way of thinking about it. Yeah. That's the different now that I had at that moment mm-hmm. that I... Messing with Jim, so that's kind of how this works. To be aware of how you own
1: the moment or own now. Speaking of now, uh, I mean, I have an impression of you that you have the facility. You can play anything you want to play. What keeps you driving your passion for music? What are you learning and working on right now? How are you growing on the drums? Good, 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 good question. You know,
0: I, I, I still. The first thing I like are drum books. I have the the wonderful uh, uh, opportunity of being on the, the list of all the top music publishers. Yeah. So send me all the new drum books that are written. Great. Send me these drum books, and they, they send the stuff out, mm-hmm. and I get the books, and in my studio I kind of go through this stuff. For example, like here's two books that I'm working on now. You know, and uh, this one here is a book by Daphnis Prieto. hmm. Daphnis wrote this book which is which is an incredibly thick book. Yeah. About Latin rhythms and different kind of rhythms and how he adapts them. It's phenomenal stuff. And it's just creative, different, new, fresh way of looking at Latin music as yeah. a cute one artist that he that he is. Mm-hmm. I have this book here that that, that I looked through go on. It's fantastic. This book by Mark Giuliano, who's a phenomenal young player. Yes. And you know, exploring your creativity on the drum set. Yeah. This is an incredible, you know, a, a wonderful book about his um, uh, drop system, you know, mm-hmm. dynamics. Um, uh, R is rhythm. O mm-hmm. is orchestration, and P is pulse. Wow. He comes up with a way of teaching mm-hmm. that is so creative on mm-hmm. how he does it. Now, Mark is a is a student of a, a student of mine. Mm-hmm. It's a lesson with Joe Bergamini, wow. who's a phenomenal young drummer in New Jersey, yeah. that um, plays is he's the number one sub for all the Broadway shows. He's involved with many many different things, and Joe was a student of mine. 25 years ago uh, when he was a young kid and Joe came to me and studied with me for about five years and From me teaching Joe then Joe teaching Mark. So Mark is like second generation uh, For my teaching so Mark and I know each other for many many years and I've sat down with Mark on a few occasions And Mark's a wonderful young drummer out there doing his thing So I get to see this book that has creativity from Mark's evolution so the cycle returns so I'm constantly pulling from that and and different music that I might be on, you know, that that, that, that that I might be listening to. At that time, I mentioned OAR. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Music. And I'll listen to some stuff that they're doing. I'll listen to Starky Puppy, and I'll just check out different things that are happening that uh, inspired me. And some older stuff. I'll go back and listen to Some old Chick Corea, and some mm-hmm. Earth in the Fire, and some Chicago. And, and then Danny Serafin, yeah, has that's right. a, a new band that he has out now, that's doing some great, great stuff, that I think he just calls Chicago okay okay and that is just cranking with great music mm-hmm. so he sent me a cd i'll listen to that and so i'm pulling from all styles everywhere drum books talking to drummers meeting musicians hanging out playing i'll play with some musicians in, in zurich switzerland and then go to play with some musicians in italy on this next trip coming up so i'll learn from them and this is just kind of like it's amazing it's it's a it's a mixture every day it's very different
1: Uh, A couple more questions, and then I'd love to see a little bit of your studio, and uh, maybe you might play a little bit or show us a little something. Absolutely. absolutely. All right, fantastic. Um, If you weren't a musician, which is hard to believe because I know it's in your blood, but if you weren't, what would you be doing? Great
0: question. Um, What's a musician? Um, I... I, um I'd probably be involved in doing some kind of a motivational uh, talking. I, I, I think you know because my my personality has allowed me through my childhood, and my influence with my, my parents and my my two older brothers and my sister <laughs> and, and and my wife people that are in my life that that have inspired me. So I think I would probably just write books and go out and give lectures and talk to universities and, and companies and uh, and do that. I
1: think I would I would still try to. Be a teacher maybe in a different way. I I agree. And I I could definitely see that in you. You'd be doing everything that you're doing now except for the drumming, but why avoid that? It's way more fun to do with the drumming, right? So if uh, if you're if you're playing and your music could produce one effect in the world, what would you want that effect to be? I think that would be
0: to inspire people to aspire, that mm. mm-hmm. my music, my drumming, the sound of my voice, and inspire someone that when they walk away, mm. they, they want to continue inspiring themselves. Yeah. That's what aspiration is. Yeah. When you inspire yourself, aspire mm-hmm. it's that aspiration way where you're continuing to you know, inspire yourself. Yeah. If I inspire someone to aspire, I think that's something which. Allows the the message to be heard and felt. I always say, people might not remember what I say, people might not remember what I do. Mm-hmm. Always remember how you make them feel. That's right. That's right. Inspire so someone to aspire, and you mm-hmm. touch touched the corner of their heart and their soul. Mm-hmm. I think you make a difference, and if you make a difference, you kind of bend the world. Yeah. If you can't change it. You
1: bend it a little. Yeah. Pretty powerful moment. Yeah. Well, you certainly made a difference in a lot of people's lives, drummers, musicians, and otherwise. Thank you for all of that, Dom, and your playing. Appreciate that. Can you give us a snapshot, a little bit of a glimpse of when a student? I mean, I've kind of been through that, but uh, when a student comes to you for the first time, what uh, what do you do with that student? What's your process? You know, and and, and uh, it's funny because
0: when a student comes to HMA, you know, and most of my students are serious players mm-hmm. that can, might not be top professionals, mm-hmm. but serious at the, the craft. Yeah. Uh, I've got some students that are financial advisors that are that play in, in an '80s uh, you know band, and they come in for lessons, and they're they're great students, mm-hmm. and they're older, and, and, and they're not serious professionals as far as wanting to play full time. Mm-hmm. But they're in a band they want to play. So I, sometimes I get students like that, and then I've got mm-hmm. many top professionals that play. That was just here. Dave King who's a top player in Canada. Mm-hmm. And he's got a recording studio. He records many albums, and he's one artist on his own. Mm-hmm. So when they come in, the first thing I have to do is I have to qualify the student.
1: You know what I mean?
0: Because I've got to find out about them as much as I can to find out where their learning you know, potential is, what they've learned, what books they've been through, what teachers they've had, mm-hmm. what their intent and goals are. Yeah. You know, you know, there's a difference between I want to be a top player, yeah, and it's my livelihood. To I want to be able to get my groove better, so when I'm playing with my 80 band, right, I, I sound, you know, I'm, I'm locked in with them. So right. I got to find out what they're, they're, what they want out of lessons. so I can then design the mm-hmm. lesson for them. Yeah, then I find out well, how many hours a week or a day do you have to practice? If a person tells me, man, I can only put in maybe three days a week and I can get maybe an hour and a half out of each day. Okay, that, now I've got to map out a target plan in that time. Yeah. Or tell me I can, do, I can do an hour a day, seven days a week.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Or I can put in six hours a day. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the plan that I give them is going to change for what time they can give the instrument. Sure. So I've got to give them just enough information within that time mm-hmm. that they learn from that can then help them to achieve their goal. If I do that, I'm at a good place. Yeah. That's kind of where that happens. And in my studio, you know, I've got three different stations that
1: I teach. Yes. Let me give you a little tour. Yeah, I'd love to see it,
0: please. I've got I've got station number one. I've got a practice pad here mm-hmm. for my student. And also, you know, so so with my students sitting there, let me see if I can get myself to sit here like this here. Like go <laughs> over here now. And the studio sits here. And in front of this, you can't really see my head here, but in front yeah. of the, is a full length mirror here uh-huh. mirror to the right. So when the student sits here, they can. They've got a double pedal here on a practice pad, practice pad in front of them, and they can see themselves on uh, two mirrors here. And I've got a flat screen TV up here mm-hmm. with a camera on I mean, so I can have this and the flat screen TV for me to record them at this, uh, what I call station number one, which is the practice pad station. That's great. Station number two is I have two snare drums over here. I've got a um, classical snare drum
2: mm.
0: and a marching snare drum here. Wow. And I call this station number two the reading station. Okay. So I have here Now, we're going to come here, the techniques that we learned in the practice pad area, mm. we're going to take those techniques and we're going to understand them we're going to learn the movements, three-stroke, molar, half-strokes, low-strokes, you know, full-strokes. We're going to get all this... Uh, Pull out some controls so all the stuff that Morello said. Yes, right. And analyze it here. Yeah. We're gonna put it here. So not only can we improve our reading, but we can we can now apply those techniques to performance. So by doing it on one surface, either a classical snare or a marching snare, mm. we need to look at the reading, improve our reading, and apply these techniques. That's great. Classical snare, you know, sounds here. That kind of a sound. Mm -hmm. It's clean, it's crisp, and we're working on low strokes and softer playing. Yeah. Just a classical type of playing, but that's where I'm going to get my low strokes and my ghost notes that I'm going to apply on the drum set. Then I go to a a marching drum, a a, Maypex marching drum with an an Evans hybrid head on it. Okay. And this is a a ProMark concert one stick. So I'm playing this here. It has this kind of a sound.
1: It's amazing. This
0: has a whole different sound from the Kevlar head that time.
1: It's a machine gun drum, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. This gives a whole other different sound and a different feel for my hand. I'm wow. gotta apply more of the bigger movies
2: here.
0: Mm. And that opens up the reading station, which is station number two. Yes. Now if I go to station number three, which is now a drum set. And I've got two drum sets here. Wow. I've got here. I've got them both next to each other. I'll just go to
1: the, the student's kit here. Okay. Beautiful drum set. Mapex drums,
0: correct? Apex drums. And I've yeah. got I've got some phenomenal sponsors, David, that are that have been with me for years. Yeah. Mapex drums supply me these kits that I have here. I've got a Mapex you know Saturn Four and Apex Saturn Five here that are phenomenal shells, they're high-end drums that are cost-effective. People buy good price point, they sound great, and my students go absolutely crazy. Yeah. Evans drum heads from the D'Addario company that make the Level 360 heads, which are balanced all the way around the rim, which give me easy tuning and great response. This is magic to have this kind of excitement. Absolutely, they endorse me. And sending the product to use in my studios. Yeah. And then I've got ProMark Drumsticks and ProMark, which is this phenomenal up and coming company which is which is which is what I call ProMark now.
2: Mm.
0: Now that ProMark is, is so far advanced than the company of ProMark of what it was. Wow. Okay. Dario Company completely put a whole new twist mm. on what's happening with the manufacturing of drumsticks. And this is powerful. Amazing. And when you buy a pair of wooden drumsticks, they plant five trees. Yeah, but there are sticks that you buy, so they're planting trees and forests. That's that great, are generating the environment. And this is a, a powerful message that they said. Yes, then I've got Sabian Simples, which are manufactured in Canada. Yeah. I've been them since the late 80s for 27 some odd years.
2: Yeah,
0: I'm playing this on this kid of the HHX. Mm-hmm. I also play the HH on my other kid here. So I've got a variety of different sounds that open up the cymbals to a, a different sound that I have. So with these drum sets here, on this kit, I've got two hi-hats, mm. right? 13-inch hi-hats, and the left side is 14-inch hi-hats. Beautiful. Two right cymbals, a 20-inch HHX, and a 20-inch Evolution cymbal here. That's great. Got a here. I've got two Chinese cymbals here, a splash cymbal over here, double pedals here. So I've got this little kit. Yeah. As adjusted to open-handed playing. Mm. Well, the playing is where the the, um, the hi-hat is level with the snare drum. Mm. Okay. Now the last student that I had in here raised the hi-hat up higher because that student played cross-handed. Uh-huh. I play open-handed, so my left hand, which is my weaker hand, mm. is the lead on that hi-hat. And uh-huh. I've got a ride cymbal on my left side, and I've got a right cymbal on my right side and a hi-hat on my right side. That's great. So mm-hmm. no longer mm-hmm. is this thinking about right-hand or left-hand drumming. Yeah. This now, is when you bring your, your technique to an equal level, mm-hmm. it's now a matter of not what hand has to be, what sound do I want? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That right cymbal sound. do I want this sound? Mm-hmm. So have options of freedom that open-handed playing now by playing my weaker side, playing the hi-hat, has opened me up at a level. It's great. It's cool there. So this is the way it's laid out. And I set
1: my tom where I played 12, 10, 16, 14. Yeah, say a little bit about that as far as the 12, 10, the two upper rack toms. What, what made you set it up that way?
0: 12, 10, 16, 14. I did this here because back in the in the early 80s, I was on tour with Billy Cobham to do clinics.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: For, uh, at the time, uh, we did a, a variety of clinics. We did like 27 cities in 28 days. Wow. Mm-hmm. And there was a wonderful uh, artist relations person that traveled with us. His name was Joe Hibbs. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, passed away last year. Sure. Earlier this year, rather. Yeah. And um, and he uh, was a dear friend, and I knew him for uh, almost you know, 40 years. Yeah. Great, great guy. And we were on a clinic tour. And he was helping us set up our drum. So, we had two drum sets set up my drum set and Cognitive set up. Mm-hmm. He would help us out and travel with us. He set the drums up. Well, we were late for a flight. People were waiting outside. It was cold outside. We're getting the drums set up. So we were like, just set the drums up and get them going. And when he set up Billy Cobham's set, he reversed the toms on his mm-hmm. back down by accident. We put them on our there. So when Cobham came over to look at it, he said, what happened here? So when Joe realized when Joe came around the back and he said, oh, my God. So Billy said, leave it the way it is. Leave it. <laughs> So I had my jump set. So so I went on and did my thing. They opened up the curtain right away. The people came in and were very excited. I did my thing. Then Billy went on and did his thing. Mm-hmm. And Joe and I were sitting backstage watching Billy on the side. And when Billy played, David, it was like he played like I've never seen Cobb play before. Now I've known Billy for years. Billy is an absolutely
1: phenomenal artist. A man's slave.
0: This day, at 73 years young. He's still playing better than ever. Wow. Mm -hmm. How much inspiring can that be? I'm saying, 10 years my senior, and he's playing phenomenal. How great is it? It's awesome. So Billy went out and played great, and after that show, Billy kept his tom's reversed. he felt that opened up his creativity. Amazing. From that point on, I decided to reverse the drum. Part of what I did was I wanted my 12-inch to always be in this first position and my 16-inch to be in the first floor top edition. Because I learned on a four-piece kit, that's what it was.
1: Yes, got it. Mm-hmm.
0: I aided the 10-inch and the 14-inch. I aided them in the spaces that I felt were available. Right. As opposed to changing my core kit. Right. So now I play 12, 10, 16, 14. That's fantastic. Think differently. It makes me play differently. And it makes me creative in a way that is extremely exciting, that is still inspiring for me to want to sit down and play.
1: Absolutely. That's fantastic. What, from, so from a happy accident, that it just works out that way, but the core kit, that's what it is. That's incredible, I love it. That's exactly yeah. what it is. So the kit, that
0: four piece, 12, 16, standard bass drum, and simple hi-hat, that's still still, I'm laying a groove down, and I just need that, that's all I need. Yeah. If I need more than that, I have other options. They may not be in the order. And if I set my setup where I go 10, 12, 14, 16, mm-hmm. where every other drummer dies. Yes. I'm gonna sound like every other drummer. Right. Right. If I make some changes with two hi-hats where I've got a right closed X hat, mm. if I got crashed, if I kinda move things around, two chant symbols on my right, I'm creating an opportunity that's different that allows me to find a voice could just be my voice. Absolutely. 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 So I've been doing this for thirty years. Yeah. And i got on my voice, this is kind of my thing. And if someone says dumb, that's the dumbest thing I've ever
1: heard. I hope you're right, but that's how I do it. That's right. Well I think it's worked out pretty good for you. So, uh-huh. so I- Don, thank you so much for your time, being so generous with all of this, your help here with Musicians on the Record. I really appreciate all of it. Don Familiaro, thank you so much for being on Musicians on the Record.
0: Thank you, David. What a pleasure being here, boy, and what you're doing is phenomenal to give people the vehicle and a chance to step into their lives. Absolutely. This is on the Record, yeah. David Ward, thank you so much. Good luck, we'll talk to you, keep going.
1: Thank you, Dom Famulero, for being on Musicians on the Record today. What an incredible story this guy has. And, uh, he is inspiring. So many drummers all around the world. It's the global ambassador of drumming. I loved the stories of hearing how his passion for music was inspired by the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, as so many others were. Meeting Buddy Rich that time, being taught by Al Miller, the stories of Jim Chapin. Just incredible stuff. Thank you so much. Dom Famularo, and for being the mentor and inspiration for this show as well. We really appreciate it. We'd also love to hear from you wherever you're listening from in the world. Please let us know which musician story you'd love to hear. We're certainly going to get to try to get all of the best ones here. Subscribe to the audio podcast here, and believe it or not, there are Videos. There's video evidence of all of these things online. You can watch these uh, interviews as well on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and all of our interviews are on MusiciansOnTheRecord.com. If you're enjoying the interviews, please be a roadie for the show and share them with somebody that you know would love them too. Until next time, let's keep it all about the music. I'm David Ward. Thanks for listening. Have a great one.